hear all of our previously aired broadcasts of News for the Soul online at newsforthesoul.com. Now let's get back to the show. Next on News for the Soul today, it's Eyes Wide Open with Janessa and SJ. Let's bring them on to reintroduce their, themselves, their show, and what's up for today. All right. Welcome to day two of our Resurrection Masterclass. So on day one, we went over how the brain works, why it works the way it does, what our thoughts, feelings, behaviors, what sequence that plays out in. And then we got really deep into victim consciousness because victim consciousness sneaks up in ways that we wouldn't actually recognize as being victim mindset. And to truly be able to show up as the hero in your story, it's really important to understand why you might be stepping out of your power. And since our thoughts, trigger our feelings. We started with our thoughts so that we can stand in our power with what we think. Now, today we're going to move into our emotions and feelings because they too can rock us from our power. And when we get caught up in what I like to call the emotional cyclone or tornado or spiral, we can feel so consumed and overwhelmed by our emotions that we're not able to even think clearly or rationally. In fact, how we feel is the number one influence in the actions that we take. Now, we talked about in the first class how our thoughts become come before our feelings, but how we feel actually is what determines what actions we're going to take. And we will move away from discomfort. That is how we work. That is our automatic response always. When we feel uncomfortable, we want to move back into a place of feeling some sort of peace, some sort of calm, some sort of normal to us. And so it's really, 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 truly valuable to have tools to calm your nervous system to process your emotions, not ignore them, not stuff them, not reframe them, not try to think your way through them, but truly process them, which does require an element of doing. It requires an element of motion. And when we ignore our emotions, depending upon how we're wired and a whole bunch of different things go into this, but Oftentimes, we can cope with self-destructive tendencies, and so we need those really healthy coping mechanisms and tools in our toolkit so that we can pull out things that are going to bring us back into our power, not the things that are going to numb us, not the things that are going to shove the emotions away until someday they manifest into physical illness. We want to deal with the emotions as they come through because they truly can just move through. We don't have to swim in it. We don't have to sit in it. We don't have to suffer through it. So a personal example of this for me is 20 some years ago, let me date myself. I got married really young and I was married for one short year. And when I went through that divorce, alcohol was my go-to coping mechanism. 
not super proud of it, but I was a young person and that's what my peers did and that's what I did. And so I drank my way through that divorce to deal with the fact that, you know, these vows that I promised were falling apart, the religious beliefs I held at that time and what that meant about my uh, destiny, um, all sorts of really heavy negative emotions came with that marriage ending. And alcohol was my number one coping mechanism. Now, as I shared in our first session, the hardest situation I've traversed in my life was this past year and a half, close to two years now. It's been a lengthy chapter. And I have not had one single drink. In fact, I've been sober for several years. Drinking after I got through that young point in my life was never um, problematic or interruptive in other portions of my life. But I did get to the point where I truly just feel better when I don't have any alcohol influencing my body. And I also had dealt with an eating disorder. So addiction is not not something that is unfamiliar to me. And going through this past circumstance, this past two years, I've had zero drinks. I've had no issues with my eating disorder because of the multifaceted beings living in a multidimensional existence. We hold the power of perception, and this power alone paints our reality. Perception influences the things we see and the things we don't see. Together, we'll explore the mystical and the material, the metaphysical and the physical, the supernatural and the concrete, the seen and the unseen. Welcome to Eyes Wide Open. I am your host, Janessa Finley Ford. I am a mindset alignment guru, if you will. I practice energy psychology, and I interpret blood labs with a functional medicine approach to help people have holistic well-being. Also, right now, for those of you who are following along, you already know my husband is incarcerated, and we're going to hopefully conclude his story here today, or our story what we've experienced in the last year, what going through the criminal justice system at the federal level actually is currently, and the things that you don't see if you're just following along and watching the press, <clears throat> listening to the news, and believing the things that we were told about our system growing up and you know, for me, over the course of my life as I worked in the criminal justice system. So I want to always start, I always appreciate questions. I want to start with the questions from our listeners um, from not last week's radio show when SJ was here, but from two weeks ago. So Jennifer in New York, I, I freaking love your question. How do we feel less powerless against the system? Such a great question. Thank you so much for submitting this. And of course, my answer is going to be our perception, right? Because our perception is our reality. So if we believe that we are powerless 
and that we are under the thumb of the world that we live in, we are definitely going to feel that way. And our life experience is going to reinforce it. And that's the really interesting thing about as humans, we want this physical, tangible evidence. We want to see it to believe it. And it's backward. We have to believe it to see it. A great example of this is Viktor Frankl. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was a psychologist held in a uh, Auschwitz, I believe specifically, but a Holocaust camp, prison camp. And so he has written a couple books. And while he was detained at that camp, his wife died. Um, his in-laws also were killed. They were separated. So he was living his time thinking he was going to be reunited with them. Um, anyway, I feel as though his perspective is probably one of the most extreme examples of where it would be so easy to believe that you are powerless in that setting, getting fed barely any food, knowing that these people all around you are dying, the chance of you living is not super high. And he talked about and even wrote a book or two after the fact um, because his manuscript was actually destroyed while he was there in the camp. Uh, but purpose, purpose is a key to maintaining your empowerment. So for me, I would say that's probably really solid information to take from a man who lived with that experience and your mindset, your perception, what you believe to be your truth in this world are going to come to fruition. So I hope that helps. Another question I received from Bruce, also in New York. Bruce, I equally love your question. Thank you so much for submitting this. Does this mean anyone questioning the COVID narrative could go to jail? And the answer is no, absolutely not. It does not mean that. So to be really clear, the uh, threats that were made through this Instagram account didn't have anything to do with COVID. So COVID came into this because it was a topic Travis was posting about in his personal account that was being censored. However, I could list many, many, many um, Dr. Malone, uh, Dr. Zelensky, I believe if I'm pronouncing it correctly, he's actually deceased uh, since the outbreak of COVID. Um, there are many subject experts in the holistic field who are not in jail. So it does not mean that if you post about it, you're going to go to jail. Absolutely not. And I'm so glad to have that opportunity to clarify that. Um, additionally, though, I want to speak to fear, right? Because fear is such a paralyzing uh, emotion, <clears throat> energy that we experience, and we experience it so frequently as humans. And so I wanted to take this opportunity just to uh, touch on the fact that when fear is present, when we're afraid of either speaking our truth or, you know, having that promotion at work, perhaps, whatever it is, like fear comes into play far too often in regular human life. 
it's never from source. It's never from God. It's never our truth. And so when we can address that fear, because the fear is never true, and that's a great way actually of addressing it. If we can identify what is our fear, is it actually true? You're going to find the answer to that is no. And then what is my truer truth? What is actually true? That can be a great way to walk yourself through that fear and to remain in your power, to go back to Jennifer's question, and to live your truth, to live your life, to live your purpose, to let your light shine, because fear can really dim our light. And so in sharing the story of what we've experienced, I do not want people out there to listen to this and walk away from it taking fear with them. I want knowledge to be power. I want people to see what is really going on in the world around them, but I don't want them to be fearful and I don't want them to feel powerless and I don't want them to feel less than and I don't want them to feel captive. I don't want that for anyone out there. I want you to know the realities of the things that are happening so that you can align your mindset just as I am sitting here today telling the story because that keeps me in a place of empowerment, I want all of you to claim your empowerment as well. Laura in the UK, how can I find out the percentage of innocent incarcerations in the UK? Uh, thank you for asking and thank you for being interested in that. And I thought I would be able to get an answer for you. And unfortunately, when I started digging into the statistics and what I don't know about the UK's justice system, which is a lot, if I'm being honest, I unfortunately was not able to come up with an answer for you. So I would direct you to seek out um, like equal justice initiative um projects or groups if you have those or innocence project groups if there's any of those and those groups should have those stats they should be able to provide you with more information or guide you in a direction so hopefully that um i would have loved to have some numbers here for you today but unfortunately i was not able to discern that from what i could find Denise in California, thank you for sharing your story. You are so welcome, Denise. And thank you for listening, for following along, and for being being there. Um, okay, so to pick up where we left off two weeks ago, we were talking at the end where Travis had hired an attorney. So his attorney contacted the prosecutors within the deadline the June 1st response date. And because his attorney thought that it should be a misdemeanor and because defense attorneys always are looking for reduced charges, you know, lighter sentencing, um, I shouldn't say that they're looking for those things, but they're looking to benefit their de the defendants. That's their job. <clears throat> so they were looking to reduce the charge from the felony to a misdemeanor as they thought that, you know, case law should indicate 
again, not yet realizing that this is the first case with this task force with these changed um, laws. And so, of course, the reduction was not entertained. And also, Travis, he qualified for diversion as far as the check boxes of not having a criminal history that the requirements and they also would not even entertain diversion wasn't happening now his response date to the prosecutor was june 1st and the very next day on june 2nd i was working at both jobs <laughs> my full-time job at the time working for the department of homeland security and then I also had stuff scheduled that day with my business, and I was just minding my own business. And my phone rings, and the caller ID showed FBI. And I thought, uh, is this a scam? Because when they had called previously, it never showed up on caller ID. And there was some sort of text glitch. I attempted to answer the phone, but it didn't connect, uh, so I ended up having a voicemail from them drop through um, about 10 minutes later. So there was something going on with the technology, but I believe it to be a blessing in disguise. When I got the text message, I was driving and uh, I'm sorry, not the text message. When I received the voicemail from the call from the FBI agent, which was the agent that had been assigned on to their next case, but was still calling me, um, anyway, I, ha I had a panic attack and I was driving. <sighs> and so I was really grateful to have that time and space to calm down and not be on the phone with them um, when I actually did connect with them. And I, at this point, didn't know what to do. I reached out to an attorney to see if I should have an attorney to continue to communicate with them. Um, the voicemail had indicated that they wanted to talk about Travis's case, but I also knew from Travis's experience, they had come with this very disarming, we need help with this case, with this situation. And so I didn't know what to trust or believe at this point in regards to were they looking at me as a subject too? I, I firmly believed that they had investigated me very deeply, not to mention already to have a security clearance. I've had all of my personal information disclosed to the government to go through that process. I really didn't have anything to hide. There's nothing on my social media, my personal use, my voice that has really even anything to do with current events um, or policies or politics or the government. And so while logically I felt like I shouldn't even be questioning whether or not I need an attorney, I, <laughs> I feel like I should. So contact an attorney and they told me, you know, with my knowledge and they didn't say the FBI isn't going to go away, but I'm pretty sure in hindsight they were thinking it. Anyway, with my knowledge of the system, um, with having contacted them and having this prior conversation with them, there probably isn't anything 
that is going to be harmful from calling them back and seeing what they wanted. So I did that to discover that they were sending me a subpoena to testify against Travis at the grand jury. Now, grand jury is where they um, present their case to this jury for an indictment to press formal charges if someone does not take a plea agreement. And the grand, grand jury was scheduled in the target letter. That date was provided. So it was scheduled, you know, back in April when the target letter was executed. Now, again, keep in mind that they failed to deliver the target letter, which they ended up doing by email. It's very interesting to me that they can serve these legal documents via email. I also received my subpoena as a witness via email. But the grand jury had been scheduled for June 13th back in April. So on the phone with this FBI agent telling me that they were subpoenaing me to testify against Travis, um, and people have had questions about why that was able to be done. And keep in mind, at the time, we were not married. So there were no protections of the law because there is no common law where we live, um, common law marriage. And I don't even know if that would matter one way or another. But it it wasn't a thing. So um, there was nothing I could do to... Um, not testify against him. So the conversation with this FBI agent didn't didn't go very um, smoothly. It was very, very, very awkward. Keep in mind, there wasn't much rapport because of my initial encounters, the lying, the lack of disclosure when I called them back. I did not have any trust whatsoever, and I was really honestly floored that if this tech case is a slam dunk, because tech should have a, a trail, their case should be locked and loaded, why would they need a character witness? Why would they choose to have me come testify against him? What did they even need from me? This is so bizarre. And everything just kept, <laughs> kept coming back to how bizarre it was the further we got into it. They were very persistent on the phone that I needed to come to a witness prep um, meeting with them a couple days before grand jury. Now, I've testified time and again in court, and so being prepped for court, first of all, wasn't a luxury I had when I worked in the systems I worked in, and also on a personal level, wasn't something I felt I needed. I, I didn't feel as though I had anything but truth to share. I didn't feel as though I could be caught off guard by anything. And so I really wasn't sure that I wanted to participate in that meeting. And so I told the FBI agent I would think about it. And they could send the subpoena over. And if I wanted to meet with them, they gave me two different days to choose from that I would make my decision and let them know. Now, they're really, in in how I felt their perspective was, there really wasn't a decision to be made. They were very persistent that, uh, yep, 
it'll be this day or this day. Make up your mind and let us know. We'll see you then. And also in serving the subpoena, they asked how I would like it sent to me. And I asked for text message. And then they also were persistent that it should be sent in some other form. And I said, well, you know, you asked what my preference was, and this is my preference. So I'd appreciate it if you'd honor that. If you're not actually going to honor an option, then, you know, don't give me one. Um, unfortunately, the text message didn't support the document, so we ended up having to follow up and have it emailed. And the subpoena came through email. And as I stated before, it's new to me that these legal documents can be served via email, but that's how we received them. So in the what would have been 12 calendar days or 11 calendar days at this point, if I can do math, <laughs> um, that Travis had to decide what he was going to do legally. He believed his only two options were to either take it to trial, and I've talked about before the expense, the time, the investment of that, especially for having someone tech-related involved come in and try to discern what was posted from his phone, what was posted from the other devices connected to the account, and sort all of that out. It was going to be quite financially burdensome. So he believed his options to be the trial process or the plea agreement. Now, he could have also made an open plea, but at no point, and I was not to be completely transparent, I was not involved with all of the conversations between him and his attorney. So this is what he would come home and talk to me about as being his options of how to proceed. There is an open plea, and the open plea would have allowed him to maintain his rights. And I'll talk about what rights he had to give up here in just a little bit when he took that plea agreement. But he could have pled guilty and not taken a plea agreement. Um, from my experience, <laughs> I should have known that was available to him, and I did not even think about it. I did not even know this was an option until January, when I met with another family who had gone through a similar but different situation, and that was what their family member chose to do. And the reason they chose to do that was to retain these rights that would otherwise be forced to be waived in a plea agreement. So <laughs> as he's, you know, deliberating between those two options, and the lesser charge, all of these incentivized things that I talked about come with the plea agreement in this last episode where I talked about his case. The likelihood that if he went to trial, he has such a minute chance of acquittal. He'd be looking at more years um, in, at sentencing if he were to fight it. It seemed like rationally and logically there was only one direction for him to go. Now, my interview for, you know, this, I call it an interview, this meeting for witness preparation, as the prosecution called it, 
happened on June 9th. <clears throat> it was a Thursday. Now, I believe that it was not to prep me. I believe it was to tie up loopholes of their case. I believe that it was more of an interview for them versus any preparation for me. And by the end of that experience with them, I felt even more bit of that because at the end, when <laughs> we were wrapping up, they asked me if I knew where to go for the grand jury. And they asked me if I knew what time. And then just, you know, minute details that were in the subpoena about what you can bring, what you can take into a courthouse, what you can't, you can't have a cell phone, those types of tedious details. At no point did they ever inquire if I felt comfortable with, you know, testifying the questions, what to expect, you know, the, the way that this had been um, posed to me to be this preparation for me really wasn't the experience of the entire exchange. So... There was a little bit of confusion around what time it was scheduled for. We initially scheduled it for 2. I asked for it to be moved to 2.30. Um, and this was all in the same conversation. So at the conclusion of that conversation, I left that conversation hearing them say, yes, we can have that at 2.30. For my schedule, I would have less to rearrange. And the day of, they called me right around 2 or a few minutes before, and they thought it was going to start at two. And so it ends up that, you know, I'm showing up late for this interview when I thought I was showing up early. And, you know, as you're probably beginning to hear, if you haven't already, the story is very complex. It's very layered. And if you would like all of the details, you can read it on my blog. You can go to my website, www.fiercelyradiantsoul.com. Click on the blog and the menu. And then if you go back to the captives will be set free, it is the first blog of the series. And you'll get a far more detailed account of all of this experience. Um, so feel free to jump in there. And um, also, if you find me on Facebook, you can find the links as well. So you don't have to look for them on the website. And on Facebook, Fiercely Radiant School. All right. So I go to this witness prep interview. <laughs> I'm late but early all at the same time. Depends on which perspective or perception you're holding. And the time frame that I was given that it would last, it actually lasted nearly twice as long. I believe that this was because I wasn't quite the witness that they were expecting to have. Uh, I also believe it wasn't because, <laughs> you know, I I didn't think that he overtly was guilty of all of these things. And the character that I was testifying to, you know, having known and dating him for five years or almost five years at that point, wasn't that of a criminal. It didn't align for them. And so the questioning took a very long time, and I'll get into more of what that experience was like here in just a second. 
one of the things that I did share with them, and I was grateful that they allowed space for, was discussing uh, the details of Travis's brother, who was the account holder of this Instagram profile. And then also Travis, because they are night and day different. Um, also, the CI agent that once the lead agent was assigned to the next case, the FBI agent that I was given to be my point of contact had reached out to me to get contact information of the brother um, because they were going to, I believe, follow up with him and or interview him for the first time. But I don't believe it was the first time that they had contact with him. And they were having a hard time reaching him because his phone number wasn't active. And I've never had his phone number. I didn't have that information for them. And I, again, thought it was bizarre that an FBI agent would be reaching out to a witness versus tracking down their own witnesses on their own. Uh, so perhaps that FBI agent was interviewing the brother rather than being present as my point of contact as had been previously disclosed or told. Um, I know that they were also interviewing Travis's ex-employer while they were here in those couple days as well. So he may have been there instead. Um, but needless to say, he wasn't present. So the FBI agent who was on the phone when I called them initially with that lead investigator was the agent present then for this witness preparation interview. So also, if you go to the blog, sorry, I had to take a drink of water there. Um, if you go to the blog, I have posted a lot of screenshots. So unlike what we experienced with the evidence with claims um, being made, the things I'm telling you, I show you the evidence of the reality of it. So getting into a little bit of the brother's um, history here. I want to be very respectful of the family, of family dynamics, um, but the the brother had, unfortunately, gone down a path of addiction, and Travis had lived with him, the brother and the brother's wife, when he originally moved back to Nebraska from Arizona, and the brother also had a tech business. He was fairly tech savvy. Travis had relied on him for tech support when he lived in Arizona, just with updating his TV or things. You know, Travis, <laughs> Travis didn't do, didn't know how to do, um, or didn't want to learn how to do, perhaps, but he would rely on his brother. So his brother had this tech business um, and was engaging in some illegal activity through that business and unfortunately he eventually was evicted from the business and people would customers would take in their equipment and pay him for services and not have those services done um, and that was largely reported so additionally the dynamic between travis and his brother got very strained as this drug problem progressed. Travis attempted to do 
a solo intervention, if you want to call it that, and try to get his brother help. His brother didn't want it. Um, their relationship became so strained, and the communication be between them became, you know, just unsteady um, and, and volatile. However, from what I have seen going through those text messages, Travis was always trying to help his brother. He even was trying to negotiate um, his brother's financial situation to be more positive. Um, at the end of their relationship, when Travis finally severed that relationship, but Travis had received threats from his brother uh, on his life, and Travis had actually called the police twice and made reports about that. And the police, local police, couldn't do anything with it because while the threats did say, I am going to, you know, kill you or whatever specifically they were, they didn't say, I have a gun and I'm on my way to come kill you. Uh, so there was some frustration with that because there wasn't any protection being given. And I find it really ironic now in this situation that the threats were made that Travis has been prosecuted for didn't have any of the I language, that ownership language, I am going to, yet he is federally, you know, charged and in prison for this. And at the local level, having threats made to him by his brother, nothing happened. Um, so we saw that, you know, aggressive behavior from his brother, um, activity, illegal activity that was caught on camera um, and nothing happened with that. There were no charges that came against the brother, even though the person the landlord was working with authorities. Now, I know that charges can not happen or appear <laughs> uh, for one reason, and I worked with a confidential informant with the FBI to get the other side experience of that, where they're giving you information. Now, I have no idea what they did or what they were saving themselves from by um, giving information on these other individuals and other crimes, but I know that's a very real thing. So I went through the fact that, you know, his brother behaviors, he did have some county court cases, so some criminal history there, the tech background, like all of these things really seem to fit and align with the situation at hand, and the brother was also the account owner. Additionally, he changed his phone number all the time, which the FBI was experiencing because they weren't even able to contact him when they wanted to. So considering there were a total of five devices connected to this account, if he's changing his phone number all of the time, is it not likely implausible? He could be changing his devices as well. All of the uh, comments stopped when Travis got a new iPhone. Um, yeah, so I presented all of this information to them thinking in my mind that they were in the pursuit of truth and that it would matter. <laughs> they would care. And they wrote notes. And when I was done, they literally asked me, do you feel better now? Now, I'm not here to say I know what an appropriate response would be. 
However, I truly felt like it was pandering. And at the time, I did feel better. Like, it felt good to get that off my chest, but I also thought that I was being heard. I still had faith in the system. I still thought that they were carrying out their job with the integrity that I had. And I didn't realize until in hindsight that as I was telling them, you know, the details about the criminal activity that had been investigated, nothing had come from it. It was one of the few times that I was interrupted and I was asked, how did I know what I knew? How do you know? That's what the FBI agent wanted to know. How do you know? Not concerned with the information I was giving, but how I knew it. Now, possibly, although I doubt likely the fact, they could have been inquiring, you know, if I had searched anything through any of the databases I had available to me through my job, which absolutely was not the case. It was not the case. I had sources and the information was valid. Um, but I didn't know at the time that that, like, I just thought, oh, okay, they're just wanting me to make myself credible. In hindsight, I think that there was concern with exactly me knowing things and nothing more than that. But that's my own perspective. Now, I also discussed with them in this interview inconsistencies in the evidence. And when I brought up the evidence or the discovery, the prosecutor actually sat forward, bladed his body toward me, leaned in, and said, oh, you've seen my evidence? And I said, yes, sir. And then he stuttered and he stammered. And he proceeded to try to explain how I needed to understand what a unique situation this is, that usually their witnesses have not seen the defense's materials. And, you know, there was no way that I was going to go to this interview naive. I wanted to see everything that was available to me. And I looked at more than just what the prosecution had sent over. I looked at Travis's phone. I looked at the scenario between him and his brother and the family dynamics and the history of behaviors. And with Travis never having threatened anyone, not having any criminal history, um, having a good job, his brother not having employment since the business closed, you know, all of these things, uh, I, I just, I just could not wrap my head around how we were where we were. And the thing that really <laughs> changed my perspective, there were two things. The interview process itself, the strategies used in um, getting information, but also the fact when I left that interview and I got home, I found out that the plea agreement had already been sent over to Travis before they met with me. And that really sealed the deal for me that they were just there getting more information for their conviction and they weren't in pursuit of truth at all. Now, the interview strategies, without belaboring the topic, some of the things which could have been just trying to create rapport. So, you know, they're, they thank you and um, 
they try to express empathy. We know that you don't want to be here. Well, actually, I do because I believe in justice. So that's actually the reason why I am here, because I know I don't have to be here. I could have chosen to not show up. So the fact that I am here is actually because I want to be. Um, oh, I other responses I got from them would be like, oh, I didn't know that you had to have a personal Facebook account to have a business profile. I didn't know that you could find locations in Instagram. And perhaps those things are, again, to build rapport with me. But my impression was actually the opposite. I'm like, if you don't know how social media platforms work, there should be more training for you to be prosecuting these cases. I feel as though you should know these things. So I'm really hopeful that that was a strategy for better communication with me because it really eroded my confidence in actually knowing, understanding how social media platforms work and having a really legal, lawful prosecution based upon all of the details. And then there was this, like, paring down of what you say. And they would start with a broad question, and if you didn't answer it with the answer that they're looking for, something that would be incriminating of Travis. And I give a really um, specific example of this in my blog that I'm not going to be labor here, but they would narrow the question down, narrow the question down, narrow the question down until essentially it's just a yes or no question. And then they turn and type in the computer. The very last thing they say, once they're, you know, appeased or content with the information you've given them, but you never see what's actually typed into their computer. And I talked about this with the FBI interviews as well, of it not being recorded and everything's on this, you know, face trust um, system, and then as part of the plea agreement, they make you sign away your right to ever get the evidence used against them. Can never have the evidence used against him. He also could not appeal, and he could never deny guilt. However, he chose to sign that plea agreement because it did decrease the prison sentence from five years to two. He believed and was told that he would have a very high chance, you know, 99% chance of getting probation. But the day that he signed that plea agreement, which was the day after I met with the prosecution, it's the day that I saw him crack emotionally, mentally, all of the stress that had led up to this point. And it was the self-betrayal. The worst lie I ever told just made me a felon and I could go to prison, my worst nightmare. And the really cool thing about energetics, energetics, it doesn't lie. And, you know, knowing what was happening with all of this trauma within his psyche and, and you know, kind of putting him back together, as I very casually refer to it as, working through his energetics, healing all of this fracturing and fragmenting and shattering that was happening. The energetics also led to the self-betrayal, not to lies, not to deceit, not to cover up. And so while my doubt had been squashed 
looking at the actual evidence, experiencing that interview. I never wish to do it again. I never wish it on anyone. But for me to understand and see what was truly happening, it was an experience that I know was put in my path for my own personal growth. And from seeing all of that, my doubt had been squashed, but even more affirming was through this energetic healing, energy psychology support I was able to give to Travis and see energetically the constructs of what was happening within his psyche and in his being. And it confirmed everything that I was seeing in the physical as well. Now, his attorney also told him that once he signed the plea agreement, there was no more talk around, I didn't do this, you're crossing the line, and once you cross that line, you cannot go back. And Travis stuck to that. So he did make admissions. He was coached to take accountability. And seeing the pain of him typing those documents and continuing down this path was really challenging. And I know it's something that no one out there, not even his attorney, grasps or comprehends. And yes, in his original interview, he did make vague, potentially interpreted admissions of, well, I was drinking. I was drinking more than I usually do during that time. I don't remember. Now, after going through the interview I went through, I can understand why someone, especially someone who's being shown a printout with numbers and devices who doesn't understand tech or technology or what any of that means is being told your device did this, that you would start looking for a reason, especially when you believe in the system, you respect the system, you want to comply with the system, to find a way that maybe that makes sense. And in the beginning, I thought he had completely, was completely guilty. But by the time we got to this place and space and time, I was beginning to see things a little differently. So we then go to the plea hearing, which was on June 16th. That was the next step in the process. Travis went to that, entered his into the plea agreement, and it was within an hour or two that the first national news coverage of his case broke. And thereafter, he lost his job. And, of course, I, I'm not going to be labor. If you go back and listen to the last episode, you'll hear more about, you know, what was the story of the national news coverage and what was the reality that we were living, how different those were. Um, so also at the plea hearing, he was told that he should get a, a probation packet where he could fill out this information for an investigation through, from the probation office that would be submitted to the court. They would make a recommendation for his sentencing. And, of course, he wanted this because he felt as though there was more positive things to be found in an investigation of him than negative. So that probation packet was supposed to be mailed to his address, never showed up. He had to follow up on that. In fact, he followed up on it with such a short time frame of when the due date was due, which he was never given, mind you, that they asked him to go to the probation office to fill out all of the information there, submit it right away, and so, you know, that something that would benefit him, the balls being dropped on that, like the packet just doesn't make it to him. Interesting. So between the plea hearing, four and a half months. Now, 
somewhere along the line, we had been told that it would probably be about 90 days between the plea hearing and sentencing, but it wasn't. It was it was longer. And because I believe nothing is by coincidence, his sentencing was scheduled about three and a half weeks before midterm elections here in the U.S. And with this case being all about election official safety, it's interesting to see that they would set up that timeline of this case that they are covering at the national news level as well. So in that downtime, Travis, of course, attempted to get another job and wasn't able to. No one wanted to hire him with him possibly needing to go, having to go to prison, understandable. He attempted to get a volunteer position to do community service and was denied because actually he wasn't criminal enough. <laughs> they wanted volunteers that had a lot of experience in the criminal justice system, and that wasn't him. He had not had a lengthy, you know, rap sheet, if you will. He did follow through with all of the recommendations of the probation office at that time. For that investigation, they had him complete a psyche bow and do follow-up sessions with that psychologist, psychiatrist, therapist, whatever her official title was. He completed anger management in one of those sessions with that psychologist. That was a referral from his attorney. So his attorney and this therapist had communication where the therapist said, oh, I talked to your attorney and he says that your case is 50-50. It could go either way. And that was a heartbreaking moment because Travis had been told that there's such a high probability of him getting probation. You know, it's a good incentive to take the plea agreement. And then later he finds out while his attorney is telling him, you know, there's such a high probability, 99% chance, what have you, it was then 50-50 when the attorney was talking to the therapist. Now, in the end of August, as we're going through this time period of just be stillness and, and quiet, Travis's bank account was closed. He was given two weeks to clear out the account. And then later after sentencing, his retirement investment credit card accounts would all be closed and he would not be able to get a bank loan. If you guys do not know that this is going on within the justice system, I believe it to only be part of financial crimes, but to be really common for people um, current day with these types of prosecutions and also dare I say it, but the January 6th convictions that are happening, this is also very common. They are, they are controlling people's money. Um, so once the probation recommendation came back from the probation office, it was recommended that he be sentenced to three years probation and community service. And that is not what happened at sentencing. As we all are already aware, he was sentenced to 18 months prison, one year supervised release after he was given 90 days to self-surrender, which means he didn't have to start his prison sentence until 90 days after sentencing, but he was supposed to be on supervision for those 90 days. However, the supervision order wasn't actually signed. And so in November, he, like a month later, he got that supervision order. Now, I know that that time frame between October and November really limited what they could legally supervise him 
for, but he complied anyway. He checked in as he should. Like, this is just who Travis is. So he did the thing. He signed the order. He didn't have to, he could have made them take him back to court. He didn't. He just signed the order and complied. And that is just who he is. Um, at sentencing, the judge also recommended he serve his time in a prison camp, which would be three hours from home. And prison camps don't have they don't have fences. They're warmer, friendlier. There is more dorm style housing units uh, and very safe comparatively. The designation for where he would be serving his time was to be made in 30 days. And when we got that designation, we discovered he had actually been designated to serve his time in Rochester, Minnesota at a federal medical center. Now he neither has medical issues or um, mental health diagnosis, but that is where he is serving his time. This facility holds all security levels, of course, because of the medical services there. So this is a, a six hour drive one way for visits. And um, we believe his designation was made based upon the political figures. And from what we have found since he started serving his sentence, we believe that they have to prove or um, have reason to believe he was going to act on those threats. And it was said on record even at sentencing and I say a lot more about what I saw at sentencing because it felt very orchestrated in my blog, and I would love for you to go read about that. What they chose to say on record, I really felt like it was not looking at all of the factors of the case, but just the ones they wanted to address. They even called some of Travis's mitigating uh, factors nonsense, on the record nonsense. Um, so anyway, the the recommendation and the security level, we believe, is because of the political figures. But at sentencing, on the record, and in some of the other legal documents, they say that they never, Travis, would act now or recidivize in the future. And so we're, he is now attempting to sort out with the Bureau of Prisons of how this placement and recommendation was made for him to be held where he is currently being held. Now, I really kind of rushed through here at the end because we're almost to the top of the hour. So again, if you'd like more details about the story, go read the blog. Uh, the feedback about the blog has been raving reviews of how incredibly well it's written. So if you are a reader, if you enjoy a good book, get into that series. You will not regret it. Um, as always, if you have questions about the case or questions for me personally, I would love to hear from you. You can submit them into News for the Soul Broadcasting, or you can submit them to me personally at fiercelyradiantsoul at yahoo.com. Um, and then also, as we close out here, I invite you guys to jump on my website, www.fiercelyradiantsoul.com. And my website's listed on News for the Soul, too, so you can just click the link. It's even easier. And I have a free relationship guide that you can download uh, for anyone who's looking to strengthen relationships, their relationships with their significant other or loved ones. It's a great place to start and start looking at where you can make some simple, easy tweaks that are going to have really great payoffs. 
And then also the five-day challenge is a great place to start for creating harmony in your relationships because there's so much personal development work that we can do within us that is actually going to shift our relationships. And so that is where we start. It is with this inside-out approach and building up that belief system that relationships are easy, they're fun, they're loving, love is safe, and then also covering other aspects of your physical health that make relationships challenging. So again, I invite you to find me on Facebook, Fiercely Radiant Soul. Come join me there and in our group, Stronger Together. You can find me either way, but both places have incredible resources um, and we can do life together. So that is it for this week's show. Please join me next week. And in the meantime, keep your eyes wide open. Hear all of our previously aired broadcasts of News for the Soul online at newsforthesoul.com. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.